Well, good evening. Okay, I got a couple of things I want to talk about before we get into the message tonight, which that comes as a surprise, huh? Because I do that all the time. But but I just I so appreciate. Can you turn me down just a, a hair, Tyler? Be great. The um, I so appreciate those verses that Katie shared. Uh, during the worship set, and I just appreciate her being willing to come, isn't it? It's not easy to be conspicuous, and so I just appreciate her being obedient to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. We're in a series on the Holy Spirit, so uh, we appreciate her coming and sharing those, but I just, I just want to comment on that because that, that first verse that she read might surprise you if you've not read that verse because it seems disconnected at first glance, that God would talk about how he's, his, his, he's a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger, rich and steadfast, love and truth, one translation renders that. Then he talks about blessing people, but then he talks about punishing people, and it seems like those thoughts are disconnected, but that couldn't be farther from the truth. They couldn't be more connected. It's because he loves us that he teaches us lessons. It's because he loves us that when we're being foolish, he lets us walk through hardship because he cares for us and he wants us to go through that foolishness so that we won't repeat it and return to it. And then I love how that idea of his unfailing love is connected to him doing a new thing because I believe that until, until you allow your heart to get a vision for how much God loves you, you're not going to be in a position to, to see the new thing that he wants to do in you. That, that, that if you're in a place maybe tonight where, where you've said, I don't think God loves me because of what he's allowing me to go through, why doesn't even, you might be saying, I know it's my fault, but why doesn't he rescue me? I think what God wants to say to you tonight is that he doesn't want to rescue too soon so that you don't risk going back to that practice in your life. So Father, for whoever that word is for tonight, we, just, we pray God that they're going to hold fast in their time of lesson learning. And whatever it is that you're trying to work out of them, that, that it's going to pass through, God, and, 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 and make room in their life, make room in their life for a walk with you that is deeper and stronger and makes them ready to receive from you this great miracle that you want to work in their life. Come on, in Jesus' name, and everybody said... Amen. Well, if you were here last week, you know that we have launched a new website, and so I just want to take just a second to say thank you to Pastor Jamie, to Malcolm. Come on, Malcolm. Ryan Nicholson, you should be clapping louder than that because they did an amazing job. Also, Pastor Justin and David Godwin did some work on uh, some copy and some artwork, and then I think it was Amber and, uh, and Alvin also contributed some, some, uh, some photo work. So we're super excited. Also, the whysaturday.com, how great is that? Uh, we, we've all been, you know, uh, out this week just taking pictures of we're riding around uh, our region and seeing cars that have their vehicles tagged. And we're hoping that if you call this your church home and you weren't here last week, we want to tag your vehicle. Uh, and so this is just part. I, I was at a, a stoplight just this week and I could see the person behind me with their phone looking up, going down, looking up, going down. And so I just began to pray, right? Say, God, whatever that person needs to see. On this website, whysaturday.com, have an encounter with them right here. I'm telling you, it, 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 you, 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 you become a, an instrument of the Holy Spirit in greater ways than you already are when you give yourself to these kinds of moments. And so we've had a lot of excitement about that. We've had over a thousand unique visits just since last Saturday to the whysaturday.com website. Over a thousand, I know, it's amazing. It's good. So even if you take the few hundred out from our church, we're getting ready to break the 1,000 mark of people that don't even, aren't connected to the City Life Church in any way. 
that are coming to visit. And remember, our goal here is not that everybody's going to come to the City Life Church. Our goal here is that people are going to have an encounter with God and go to the church that God's calling them to. We're, we're, we're hoping that through this campaign and through this initiative that churches all over the area that are going to grow because people are going to find themselves connected to the community that God has called them to. And so, you know, we did door hangers this morning. Come on, how awesome was that? So, you know, for those of us who are naturally introverted by way of our personality, that's not the easiest thing to do. So I saw one person roll up and I was like, come on, because I know that they are an introvert also. And they, they, they actually sent me an email just this week. It was so funny. It, the email said, introverts unite, but individually in your own homes. Individually in your own homes. So I was like, it's so good. So, so that person, and so after the door hangers were over, I went up and said, did you talk to anybody? And they were like, of course, God, maybe talk to somebody, right? I'm doing the door hangers, and people were in their yards. And so I was on the way to the door hangers this morning. I got here a little bit earlier, and so we drove separate cars. And, and so I'm just praying, you know, as we're coming, and just praying that God's going to help us. And those of us that maybe it's not quite our personality, just be out in the neighborhood talking to strangers. And, and this is, I kid you not, I kid, this is what I felt like. God said to me directly, you know, Fred, Polycarp was burned at the stake. You're just doing door hangers today, right? I kid you not. Well, that's what God said to me. And so I'm sharing that with you because sometimes, you know, I think God says to us, hey, what I'm asking you to do, stop pretending that it's so stinking hard because it's not, right? And so it just, it changed my perspective. I was like, you know, God, you're right. You know, and so I, I think probably what God was saying to me, Fred, when what I'm asking you to do causes you to put your life at risk for the gospel, then we'll talk. But until then, would you just man up and do what you're supposed to do, right? So when I got here, I was like, come on, let's do some prayers, right? And so you might be leaving here today going, oh, I'm not sure I want to put that whysaturday.com on my windshield. Just remember, Polycarp was burned at the stake. We're just asking you to put whysaturday.com on your, on your windshield, on your windshield. All right, that's an amazing story about Polycarp. And many of you don't know who that is. You should look it up for yourself because he's a hero of the church. Well, we're in a series entitled The Holy Spirit. We're going to be in this series for the rest of this summer. Uh, we're, we're, we're kind of drilling down specifically on what happened in Acts chapter 2. This, this idea of Pentecost or this word Pentecostal, what does that mean and what's that about and what's the baptism of the Holy Spirit about? And so this is our third week in this focus on Pentecost and then I think next week what I'm praying about is that we're going to move into 1 Corinthians 12 and begin a conversation about spiritual gifts and how Paul breaks that out. So we're going to dive in and dig into that a little bit next week just to give you a little, little bit of a glimpse. So 1 Corinthians 16, 22 says, if anyone does not love the Lord, that person is cursed. Meaning that they've decided for themselves that, that, that forgiveness is freely available to everyone. So if you're rejecting it, that's on you. That's what Paul's saying there. But then he says this phrase, our Lord come. And this phrase is the word Maranatha. And this word has kind of inspired our series here at the Newport News campus. Depending on how you spell this word in the Greek, it means two different things. It can either mean our Lord comes or our Lord has come. And I believe that we're not supposed to pick. I think God, and it, because he's genius, right? He's divine, he's sovereign. He created a word that means two things because two things happen that are significant to us as devoted followers of Christ. Jesus has come. The Messiah that the Old Testament speaks of has already entered the world, died for the sins of the world, and he's coming again. 
And those of us who are devoted followers of Christ, I like to say we have a Maranatha calling that has been given to us by God to bring the message of the gospel, the good news that Jesus has come and he's coming again. And that we will never be effectual in bringing that message to our world without the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. Th this phrase, Pentecostal, has so much baggage. It's, it's got so much bias attached to it. And so I've just been sharing every week what our definition of this word is, is that we have an unshakable belief that God still does the impossible, and sometimes he wants to do supernatural things through us. Just as he did 50 days, we're going to talk about it tonight, 50 days, that's where the word Pentecost comes from, after Jesus' resurrection, no longer exclusive, we're going to talk about that a little bit tonight as well. That in Acts chapter 2, there's this, this idea that the Holy Spirit now is, is, is here for everybody, not just a select few. All right, Acts 2, 3 through 4, says, Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present, not some, not a few, not just the 11 disciples, right? Because Judas has committed suicide, taken his life in his despair for having betrayed Christ. So there's 11. They've now picked Matthias. And so he's going to be the 12th person that takes his place. It's not just these super spiritual people that walked with Jesus. It says, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Now, I want to talk about this a little bit, and, and, and I want to give you what I believe is a, a fair interpretation of Acts 2. There's lots of interpretations of what happened here. I'm sharing you what our church teaches here. It might be different from what you've been taught. It might be different than what you believe, and we're okay with that. But what we're doing is we're saying this is what we see when we read these texts. Now, one of the things I want to point out about spiritual language that's important here is that people miss the historic moment that happened here in the church. Now, many people connect Pentecost and Passover, and we're going to do that in just a minute. But the, the historical connection that people miss here with Acts chapter 2 is the connection that takes place in Genesis with the Tower of Babel. Because in the Tower of Babel, it says that mankind wanted to make a name for itself. And so it was going to build a tower that reached into the heavens. And if you go to Genesis, in the early chapters there, it says that God came and observed their work and said, Hey, if these people are united, and they're, they're of one thought and one mind and of one heart, there's nothing that they're not going to be able to do. And, and, and they're not supposed, they're not on the earth to make a name for themselves. They're on the earth to make a name for me, right? So this is one of these examples of because God loves us, he rescues us from our own humanity. So he comes in, and the way he brings division to mankind is that he gives them different languages. And what we see here is a birthing of diversity and a birthing of ethnicity that begins in the world. And so he divides the world through language. And then when you get to Acts chapter 2, where the church comes and is birthed, there is a reunification of God's people through language. Does that make sense? There's a historical connection here. There's division that comes through language, and then there's a unification that comes through language. Not an earthly language, but there's a unification of spiritual language. Because now the world, right, thousands of years later, depending on what you believe about history, maybe it's tens of thousands to you, is that God is saying there's diversity in the world. And I like that. There's cultural diversity. There's ethnic diversity. There's all kinds of diversity. But I want people to come back together again 
unified as they were in the beginning in Genesis. And the church is going to be the common ground that they come to to build something, not a tower to make a name for themselves, but an ecclesia, a called out what Jesus came to birth, a church that's going to be birthed into the world so that people can be of one mind and of one heart. And what God said of the people in the Tower of Babel, he wants to be able to say it again of his people, what is it that they cannot do? Now, I have over here this other hashtag talks about who said what and who heard what. See, when you, when you read the text, when, it re, when you read the text, it says, we're not going to do it for sake of time tonight, but you can read it in Acts chapter 2. It says that they began to speak in tongues, and we use the word spiritual language. They, they began to speak in a language that was unknown to them, but the text specifically reads that other people heard their, their native language. It does, the text does not say that they spoke those languages. It says that's the language that was heard. And you say, well, why is that a distinction that's important? Because people that want to minimize the supernatural nature of this moment and say this isn't spiritual language, they were all just God gave them the ability to speak in a foreign language. I don't believe that. My interpretation of this text is that they all spoke in a spiritual language, and then what people heard supernaturally was the language of their own nation. Now, you might say, well, Fred, I think that's reading into the text, but let me tell you why I believe that. Because when you get, listen to this, verse 12 says, they stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. Now, this is at the end of a listing of all the countries that represent all these different languages that people heard. Now, if the text stopped there, you could accuse me of forcing my interpretation on the text, but the text does not stop there. It goes to verse 13, and listen to what verse 13 says. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying they're just drunk, that's all. Now, that's an important inclusion, because I've been around a lot of drunk people in my life. I used to be a bartender, right? Anybody here been around intoxicated people before? It's okay, okay? Some of you, you're saying, I was the person, right? <laughs> I've been around a lot of drunk people in my life, right? I'm, I'm, I'm 48, a lot of drunk people in my life. I have never in all of my life seen, as a result of intoxication, the ability to speak with clarity in languages that you were never taught. Right? Have you? I know some of you here tonight, you're in law enforcement, and you're pulling people over, you're going to give them a DUI. And the evidence he wrote on the ticket was they were speaking three different languages with such fluency, I knew they were drunk. <laughs> right? When does that happen? It doesn't. Why is that? They're speaking in a spiritual language as the Holy Spirit gives them the ability there were people in the crowd who just God likes to reveal himself in supernatural ways. He enabled some people to hear their own language. But to other people, right, to other people who don't care about God, hearts are hard, they didn't, they didn't hear anything. In fact, what they heard was so nonsensical, they came to the conclusion that all these people must be intoxicated. See, if we rush through the text just because we're trying to get through the reading plan, because we're trying to keep up, we'll miss so much of what God has put in here, and it will narrow our view and our understanding of what's taking place. So we want to be a church that slows it down and opens it up. All right, so I want to work through five, if we have time, work through five. If I don't get through all five tonight, then I'll what the rest. Vlog the rest, yes, thank you. Since Mike Weaver's not here when he 
made fun of me the other night for one of the things that I said. So, all right, all right. So, so if I don't get through, I'll blog the rest, and you can get that through this fabulous new website that we just launched. So, all right, so let's talk about what, 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 if I believe whether or not the baptism of the Holy Spirit, this idea that the Bible talks about, is it, is it different from salvation? I, I think that it is, and so let me, let, me, let me make an argument of that for you. In John 20, 22, it says he, speaking of Jesus, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, that sounds to me a lot like what happened in the Garden of Eden, does it not? It says that he breathed on him. And in the Hebrew, the Hebrew there is the Ruach HaKodesh, the, the breath of heaven or the breath of God. And so, so Jesus here is connecting himself, right, historically to this moment in Genesis where Adam is formed together from the dust of the earth and God breathes on Adam, right? He breathes on him and the Spirit of God comes. So Jesus is saying, hey, there is a restoration of your relationship with God that Adam and Eve lost to the world through the original sin and now the Spirit of God can now live inside of us once again because I have died on the cross for forgiveness to come to you. And it says he breathes on them and says receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe, as many do, this is what you would call their salvation moment. It's their John 3 moment. It's what we like to say here at City Life. This is when they took their first spiritual breath. They were born again in this moment. Now, John 20, 22 takes place on Sunday night. It's the evening of Jesus' resurrection. So he raised himself from the dead that Sunday morning, and then he appears to the disciples in the upper room, and here we have this encounter. Now, if the Holy Spirit was given to them on that day, then what happened to them 50 days later? Now you might say, well, Fred, how do you know it was 50 days later? Because Jesus died during the feast of Passover. And one of the main Jewish feasts is also the feast of Pentecost. Penta means 50. It was called Pentecost because it always happened 50 days after Passover. So there's the Feast of Passover, then there's the Feast of Pentecost. The Bible tells us that Jesus appeared to people as a resurrected Lord and a resurrected body for 40 days. For 40 days, then there is his ascension. He tells them to go wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes and and then he didn't come for another 10 right because we do have to do a little bit of math when you're studying the bible and so the it says on the day of pentecost that's where acts chapter 2 picks up so they've been praying for 10 days been waiting and praying and, and right and some of you are like 90 minutes is too long of a church service to me right they had a 10-day church service 10 days they've been lingering and and waiting and 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 then and then he comes. I think God did that on purpose. In fact, I think everything God does is intentional. There's, there's a lot of things that we do in our lives just on accident, right? We just, we, we kind of stumble into good ideas oftentimes. That never happens to God. He, he could not be more intentional. And so I think that one of the reasons why God put 50 days in between Acts 2 and John 20 is that he was trying to communicate something to us. I think he was saying, hey, these, these are different experiences, Different experiences. As you'll see in a quote a little bit later, we get all of who God is when we make a vow of devotion to Christ, but he doesn't always get all of us. I have that little hashtag there, the, the narrative text. Part of Pentecostal theology is that we believe the stories of the Bible are instructive. 
the stories, the, the stories, the chronology of the Bible, the order in which things happen. It's not just creating a historical context for, for a narrow list of truths to be communicated that all of the Bible is given to us to teach us about our life with God. Randy Hurst, here it is. We don't get more of God at the moment we are baptized in his spirit. God gets more of us. It's an argument that people say. People say that churches like ours that believe that Acts chapter 2, this idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is still for today. That they say, well, you can't, God doesn't portion himself out. No, he doesn't portion himself. But guess what? We portion ourselves out back to him because of the sinfulness of our own humanity. And this moment of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a, is a, is a threshold moment for us saying, God, I want to be all in. Are we ever all in? No, but we're supposed to make progress. And the experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit helps us make a big push in our journey of devotion to Christ. Did I miss something up there? Oh, yeah, let me, let me talk about that. I have a, anybody have a chiropractor? I have a chiropractor. I, I love my chiropractor. There once a month, I'm, I'm social media, him all the time, Dr. Egan on, over on Big Bethel. And, and, um, and I, I love the, the chiropractic experience because I feel like it's a great analogy for, for, for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When you go to the chiropractor, it's because you're, 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 not, in a, you're not in proper alignment. And, and what the chiropractor does, he helps get your, your body rightly aligned. And, and, and when you make a vow of devotion to Christ, we're, we're, we're out of alignment. You with me? Our, our, our will is, is, has all of these influences that are trying to get it to make certain decisions. And I like to think of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a spiritual chiropractic experience because it's this moment where the Holy Spirit is positioned inside of you, your, your immaterial self, the part of you that you can't see. Peter uses the phrase, the hidden person of the heart, or the cryptos anthropos cardia, the hidden person of the heart, the part of us that makes us unique, that's going to live on forever. That, that part of us needs to have the Holy Spirit as the loudest, most dominant influencer of our will. And, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit is about the Holy Spirit, all of who God is, being rightly positioned in us. That's why Galatians 5, Paul talks about a life where we walk in the Spirit. Where we walk in the Spirit. It means that we're walking in a place of obedience to the Holy Spirit inside. All right, so point number, question number two. You might say, well, Fred, why, why, if, if, if you're so convinced what, what you're talking about tonight is so true, then why haven't you heard it before us? Because you should have come to City Life a lot sooner. And you would have heard it, right? So, so let me just talk about this a little bit because it's a, it's a fair question. Hebrews 6, 1 through 2, listen to this. It says, so let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ, right? The writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, come on. There's, there's this idea of basics, just fundamentals of Christianity. And listen to what the writer of Hebrews, we don't know who the writer of Hebrews is. A lot of conjecture, some people believe it to be Paul, but at the end, we just, we don't know who the writer of Hebrews is. We, we know that all the author of the Bible is, the, is, is God, but he used people and we don't know who he used here. So the writer of Hebrews, so let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds, placing our faith in God. You don't need further instruction about baptisms. So to the early church, it was a fundamental teaching that there were many baptisms. For, for some of you tonight, you've only ever heard of one baptism, and that's the 
to be water baptized when you make a vow of devotion to Christ, right? Can we just agree that what happens so often in history is that we drift away from some of the fundamental teachings of Scripture, and part of the responsibility of the church is to help bring people back to a place of understanding the things that God always intended to be fundamental. Now, this is for another sermon for another time, but we believe there are four specific baptisms that God talks about throughout Scripture. There's what's called a baptism of fire, and oftentimes when that phrase is used in the New Testament, it's it's referring to being baptized in hardship. Baptism is the Greek word baptizo. It means to be made fully wet. Sometimes we're, we're immersed in hardship because God is trying to shape us. Sometimes God allows us to be immersed in hardship, whether it, as we've already talked about, it's our own foolishness because he's teaching us a lesson, or I call it redemptive affliction, sometimes even in our innocence. He immerses us in hardship because he's shaping our character, and sometimes there's things in us that won't be formed except through difficult times. So there's this word baptism of fire. There's a water baptism that accompanies our vow of devotion to Christ. Paul talks about being baptized into the church, meaning that the, 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 this idea of making a formal commitment to be a part of a church family, Paul uses the phrase being baptized in the church. And, and, and can I just say to people that really, maybe they don't even want to have anything to do with church. Maybe don't want to have anything to do with God. If you were to say that you did any of those three things or talk about any of those three things, they would not think you to be unusual, right? Because they're just, they're commonplace in, in, in our culture and in, in many religions. But this idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which used to be in the first century, fundamental, basic Christianity has now been relegated to this idea that, that people are just, they're afraid of it because they're confused about it. And we really feel like part of our responsibility as a church is to bring that back into the fold as a fundamental teaching of our Christian experience. Acts 2.39. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away. It's not a phrase that's speaking of geography. It's about genealogy. He's saying generations to come. It's not just for today. This is an important text because some people say, I believe in it, Fred, but I believe it was just for the birthing of the church and then it ended. But this verse, you have to deal with it. He's saying, no, 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 it's for generations to come. All who have been called by the Lord our God. This is this idea before where I've talked about exclusivity ends in the first century in the birthing of the church where the, the moving of the Holy Spirit in people's lives in supernatural ways here Peter is saying, no, 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 this is is for everybody, not just for this person, not just for that person like it was before. No, no, no. If you make a vow of devotion to Christ, it's for all of us. Luke 24, Luke 24, 28 to 31. There it is. By this time they were nearing Emmaus. Right? Many have heard of, you've heard of an Emmaus walk, great experiences that people can go on to have an encounter with Christ. And so this is a post-resurrection experience of Jesus to these two men. It says they were, they were nearing the end, they were nearing the end of their journey. Jesus acted as if he was going to go on. He's been walking with them, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. 
So he went home with them and he sat down to eat and he took bread and he blessed it. Then he broke it and he gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were open, right? So this is Jesus in his resurrected body. He's been walking with them and, and, and Jesus has, is, I don't even know how to describe it, has kept them from being able to see it because he's got a flair for the dramatic. Don't you love that about God, right? And so they think they're walking with a person and all of a sudden he enables them to realize this is the resurrected Lord. Their eyes were open and they recognized him and at that moment he disappeared. And then it says, and then they had to go change their clothes, right? Because that's the moment you wet yourself because of what just happened in the Bible, right? It, we, we, push, we push past this stuff. Can you imagine? You're walking, you think it's a person, it's Jesus. He's talking to you and then all of a sudden, hello, right? He's, he's there and he's not there. Love it. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? One translation renders this, opened our minds to the truth. I'm not asking you to agree with me. I'm trying to inspire you tonight to be a person who takes up a prayer that says, God, open my mind to the truth. Not, not to me. Not to Fred, not to his ideas. God, open my mind to the truth. To the truth. If we're not careful, we will get into this place where we think we've got it all figured out. Right? Can we just agree? These people that he was walking with, right? They were connected. These were devout Jewish people. They, they knew the scriptures backwards and forwards, but even they needed some enlightenment and some revelation. Can we just say all of us need the revelation that Jesus wants to bring to us? And when I made a vow of devotion to Christ in 1990, when I was 23 years old, one of the first prayers that I began to pray is, God, I want it all. Whether I understand it, whether it frightens me, whether it confuses me, I'm tired of living my life, making decisions about what I am and not going to do and who I am. God, I, I want you to have my whole heart. I want everything that you have for me. That when I get to the end of my life, when I breathe my last, when I get to the end of my days, if there's things that I missed out on, let it be because you sovereignly chose not to put it on my path, not because I was afraid. I want it all. Will I lose control? Maybe, if you have a problem with self-control, you might remain that way, right? See, 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 what happens so often in the church is that people, they come in with a self-control problem. And that's okay, right? Because the church is here for healing and wholeness and restoration in people. But what happens so many times is people have these supernatural experiences and their lack of self-control, especially in public corporate worship services, gets tagged as a manifestation of the Holy Spirit as opposed to rightly connecting it with the self-control problem of their character. And as I'm going to show you some text tonight that even in a church like ours that's in passion, even in a church like ours that believe that God can speak, everything should be done in an orderly way. The fruit for me, as we're going to get to it, is gifts that God gave to the church that are supposed to draw people in. If it's driving them out, it's not being done in the right way. Well, I lose control. 1 Corinthians 14, 32 says, remember, remember that people who prophesy are in control of their spirit and can take turns. 
First and second Corinthians was given to the world through Paul by the Holy Spirit because this church had problems. They were out of order. When you read First Corinthians, you're like, how, what, what, how did they even survive, right? They had such huge problems. And one of the problems that they had was that it was just a supernatural free-for-all. And Paul's saying, hey, that's misrepresenting God. You've been put on this earth to draw people to him. And the way that you're conducting yourself, you're misusing these gifts. And they're driving people out. And that's got to stop. Now, let me, let me read verses 22 and 25. Then I'm going to talk a little bit about Galatians. 22 and 25 and 14. So you see that speaking in tongues or spiritual language is a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for the benefit of believers, not unbelievers. Now, that's, again, for another sermon, another time, why that is. The, the importance is, 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 the, is the point that Paul makes. Now, listen to what he says here in 23. Even so, if unbelievers or people who don't understand these things come into your church meeting and hear, the operative word here is everyone. You track it with it? People misrepresent this text. Hear everyone speaking in an unknown language in the context of 1 Corinthians 14 is spiritual language through the ministry of a prophetic gift. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. Here's everybody operating in this one prophetic gift in churches. They will think you're crazy. Some of you have never seen these verses before, right? It's right here. But if all of you were prophesying and unbelievers or people who don't understand these things were to come into your meeting, they will be convicted of sin and judged by what you say. And that can get confusing because you think, well, why did he just say that it's for the believer, not for the unbeliever? But then he says it can have a benefit to the unbeliever. So let me tell you what I believe Paul's saying here. I think what Paul's saying is, hey, all the gifts that God put into the church, they're to build the church up and to reach people for Christ. And if you're using these gifts inappropriately, there are consequences. So spiritual language is supposed to be a part of church. That, that prophetic ministry through spiritual language is supposed to be a part of our Christian experiences in our times of gatherings. But, but if that becomes the central focus of why you're gathering together, this thing that was supposed to draw people in will drive them out. And then when Paul uses humor here, in fact, God uses humor here through Paul. He's saying if you're going to make a mistake like this, at least make a mistake with something that has a chance that has a chance to be used for the good, right? He's using, this is, he's being satirical here. He's saying, hey, if you're going to make a mistake, at least make a mistake with prophecy because then at least everybody can understand what's being said. Paul, Paul's saying here in this text is, hey, don't take what God intended to be something sacred and make it into a circus because then you won't have the impact that you're supposed to have in the world which defeats the purpose of why I've called you to be here, to be a part of the church, because of this historical connection with the Tower of Babel, because of those verses that Katie read about God wants to do a new thing. And when God's doing a new thing, people want to be around it. And when people want to be around the new thing that God is doing, they have an encounter with Christ and their eternity is settled and heaven is populated and marriages are restored and relationships are mended and healed. And God says to us, Get, stop getting in my way with all your problems with self-control. How many times, do, right, he says, I, I keep putting it in here from start to finish. In fact, it's right in Galatians 5, 22 to 23. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. And guess which one the last one on the list is? Temperance, self-control. So the very fruit of the Holy Spirit 
is control is self-control. And so when someone says, I couldn't help myself because I was in the Spirit, we say, well, maybe that's true, but the Spirit you were in wasn't the Holy Spirit because the fruit of Him is self-control. Let me, let me, I'll come back to it. All right. Larry Kreider. Love Larry Kreider. <clears throat> All right, I'm, I'm I, I, we'll be good. I can't stop now. Come on, you know, okay. So some, some sincere believers have told me that they hear negative things about spirit-baptized people. So have I. But we live by the word of God and not by other people's experiences. We may see something happen in the name of the Holy Spirit that may not be the Holy Spirit at all and think if that's the Holy Spirit, I don't want anything to do with it. And I think sometimes God says, neither do I. And they keep attaching my name to it. But we cannot throw out the baptism of the Holy Spirit because of what we saw or experienced that was not authentic. And you know what? We don't want to throw out those people either because those people need the work of God in their life so that they can come to a place of healing where self-control is not a problem because we believe in transformation. We believe in change. We believe that people can grow. And so if there are people that seem to be a little bit out of sorts or out of order, we're not trying to usher them out the back door. We want to usher them deeper in. It's an opportunity for us to love on them and to help them grow like we all need people to love us through. Is spiritual language for everyone? I think it is. I think it is. In 1 Corinthians 12, 29 to 31, and then 1 Corinthians 12, 7 and 11, and then 1 Corinthians 14 and 18, I believe that if you don't recognize that spiritual language is something that is represented to us in Scripture in three different ways, you will remain in a place of confusion with the Bible because you want to lump it in as one thing, and then you'll think that this text is talking about this one thing when it's really talking about something else. There are three distinct uses of spiritual language that Scripture gives to us. The first one is a person that moves in a prophetic calling with spiritual language that is through a spiritual language and then also an interpretation. It's a person that God feels like they speak to them and like Katie felt like God spoke to her tonight and she shared a verse. Oftentimes in our services, someone might come, it's somebody we know, someone we trust and then we, in the worship wrap up, like with Stephanie Hocanning or, or Kim Walls or Chip Galito, you, these are people that you've seen that come up. It's an unscripted part of our service. That God speaks to them, and then we want that to be shared. There are people that, that that's part of what they're supposed to be in the church. It's part of their gifting. We're going to get into that next week. If that's curious to you, then you keep coming back, and we're going to keep telling you about those things. But not everybody in the church is called to move in that way. That's part of the teaching of 1 Corinthians 12. Different people have different callings. I remember when I first started going to church with my parents. I was living at home. I was trying to get my life together, and I had not yet made a vow of devotion to Christ. And one of the elders at that church, the church that I was at for 17 years before coming here, his name was Charlie Bevels. He was a former FBI agent. He was like 6'5". He was this massive man, but super gentle, super humble. And that oftentimes in the services that he would have uh, something that God, he felt like God spoke to him, and it would be in a spiritual language. And then somebody else, or maybe he would give the interpretation. Can I just tell you, many of those moments were moments where I knew that God was speaking to me. Is it different? Sure it is. Can it be off-putting because you've not been around that before? Yes, it can be. But I don't want my own personal awkwardness that's born out of my humanity to keep me from the supernatural things that God wants to expose me to. 
1 Corinthians 12, 7 and 11 talks about supernatural moments, meaning that if you are a devoted follower of Christ, you are a candidate to be used by him in supernatural ways, even if it's not your primary gifting and calling. Again, we're going to get into this over the next couple of weeks. But then you get to 1 Corinthians 14, 18. Paul says something interesting, and I want to read it to you out of the New American Standard because it's one of the most literal translations of the Bible. If you're doing some intense study, you, you, you want a translation that has some specificity to it. 14:18. I thank God that I speak in tongues or spiritual language more than you all. Now, the, the New Living Translation kind of downplays that, and I think it's a misrepresentation of the text. The King James does it this way. The New American Standard says more than you all. Now, this is another sermon for another time, too, but 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 17 is all about Paul bringing correction to their corporate services through the use of spiritual language as a prophetic ministry. And then when you get to verse 18, he shifts gears. We know that he shifts gears because for the prior 17 verses, he's saying that all of you need to do this less in your times of gathering. So if you think that 18 is a continuation of 1 through 17, that Paul has just undone everything he's just taught. What he's saying is, hey, don't forget don't forget, spiritual language is used in many different ways. It, he's saying to them, I've been talking to you about prophetic ministry in your church. And then in verse 18, he says, I get it. Spiritual language is a part of my everyday life, just like it is for you in your times of worship and prayer. That's why he says, I do it more than you all. There's an assumption here that's played out through the context of the chapter that he assumes everybody here is, has a spiritual language through their prayer and their worship. But he's saying, but you're not supposed to necessarily bring that through prophetic ministry into the church, which is his first 17 verses and then he goes back to it through 19 and on if you have questions about that shoot me an email and I can talk to you about that some more if we don't see that there are three distinct ways that spiritual language is given to us then these texts become cloudy but once we say spiritual language has three distinct uses and functions in the church and in our lives then all of a sudden all these texts that were before confusing I think begin to have great clarity so I'm going to wrap up with this one, but what if I don't understand what I'm saying? Because this is a good question, right? You're saying